is the Mulberry Lane Show. The Mulberry Lane Show. Exclusive interviews, fun, music, celebrities. Your weekend getaway. Now, here's Mulberry Lane, Rachel, Bo, and Ellie Cat. Be a part of the family. It's Rachel here with your radio sisters, Bo and Ellie. You know it. And you know what time it is. Mm-hmm. It's time for the Mulberry Lane Show. Well, another weekend, another jam-packed show for you guys. It's real, it's here, it's ready. All right, here we go. Let's get to those guests. The Mulberry Lane Show's on. Celebrity story songs. You're going to have it going on when we tell you who's stopping by now. Well, first up, you've met him here once before. Engelbert Humperdinck is back again, this time talking about his brand new album, The Man I Want to Be. What's amazing about this legendary artist is this is his 81st album. And of all his albums, he's had four Grammy nominations, 63 gold albums, 24 platinum albums. So as you can see, he definitely is a legend in every sense of the word. Engelbert visits with you about the recording of this album and who it's dedicated to and the inspiration behind it. And what's interesting is he's recording songs written by Ed Sheeran, Bruno Mars, and Richard Marks. Yes, so Engelbert's career and voice have stood the test of time from his timeless hits like this. So I sing you to sleep after the loving with a song I just wrote yesterday. To his interpretation of modern hits like this one from Ed Sheeran. So you can keep me inside the pocket of your ripped jeans, holding me closer to the ice meat. You won't ever be alone. Wait for me to come home. Gotta love that voice. Okay, Rachel, who's up next? Well, next, you guys are going to meet Michelle Rubini. Now, he's an acclaimed pianist, composer, and member of the world-famous Wrecking Crew, who were a group of studio musicians who played on all the hits of the 60s and 70s. So Michelle played on Sinatra's Strangers in the Night, Sonny and Cher's I Got You, Babe, and the Righteous Brothers' Unchained Melody, among many, many others. So he's got some stories. He tells them all in the new book, Life in the Key of Rubini, a Hollywood child prodigy, and his wild adventures in crime, music, sex, Sinatra, and Wonder Woman. Guys, these are some pretty incredible music stories you're going to hear today from Michelle. Uh-huh. Talk about someone who's lived a rock and roll lifestyle. This is the guy. Mm-hmm. Okay, Allie, who's next? Then we're going to change the mood just a little bit. You're going to go from meeting a rock and roll guy to meeting a Mayo Clinic physician. Only here. <laughs> That's right. You're going to meet Dr. Scott Litton, an internist at the Mayo Clinic. He was the editor of the huge medical book, The Mayo Clinic Family Health Book. And this has lots of tips for you and your family. And Dr. Litton shares some of those tips today. And believe it or not, it was the doctor who actually sang back to us on our intro song. Can you believe it? (laughs) We've had a few music people in the past sing back to us, but the doctor did not hesitate. He just broke into song, which was really surprising to us. And I have to say, Rachel, he was actually in tune. Mm -hmm. So pretty cute. Stay tuned for that. Okay, well, guys, you're going to hear right now something cool that happened to us this past week. 
was very out of the blue. We got a message that a song from the Mulberry Lane song catalog was actually picked up and aired in the ABC hit show, The Goldbergs. Now this episode aired in April. It was a song that we wrote with our Boston songwriting buddies, Dow Brain and Brad Young. And what's so cool about this is we've had movie soundtrack placements before, but this is our first major network song placement. We wanted to share that fun and exciting news with you. Well, guys, happy Father's Day weekend. And we got to take a moment here to say happy Father's Day to our dad. Now, after raising four daughters who weren't the sporty or outdoorsy type, we got to say we'll never forget those shopping trips with dad. Those were the best. I think there was a lot of singing in the car and dad would add clapping. And there was always the, okay, you want that too? That's fine. (laughs) Until mom heard and she said, Frank, you spoil them too much. And we'll never forget forget those double scoops of ice cream on the way home from ballet lessons. Yep, we'd order a single and he'd say make it a double. And that double wasn't baseball, it was ice cream. <laughs> Love you, Dad. And happy Father's Day. Well, we've got a triple scoop of awesome guests for you. Yep, with all the toppings. We'll be right back with music legend Engelbert Humperdinck right after this. Woo. Keep hanging out with your radio sisters right here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Meet the celebrities on your radio station. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Thanks for keeping it right here with your radio sisters on the Mulberry Lane Show. Well, you met the king of romance, Engelbert Humperdinck, once before in the show when he told you all about his 80th album, A Series of Duets. Now he's back to chat with you all about his 81st album, The Man I Want to Be, which features songs written by Ed Sheeran and Bruno Mars. But first, a quick refresher. Now, Engelbert has four Grammy nominations, 63 gold albums, and 24 platinum albums. Definitely a legend by any definition. Welcome, welcome back to the show, Engelbert Humperdinck. Oh, gosh, that's lovely. (laughs) Great to have you back. So now, The Man I Want to Be, how long did that take to put together? The Man I Want to Be took about, I'd say, six months. Okay. Yeah, six months of putting the arrangements back and forth from England to America and then sending it back again and back and forth and back and forth and re- recording it in Capitol Studios in, in Los Angeles and, and some of the other studios that I've worked with over here. Okay, so now how did you choose the songs? Well, the songs, my record producer, you know, brought some songs along and they seemed so apropos. And, and of course, we, this is a dedication to my wife. It's a love letter to my wife. And I met her when she was 17, and we've been together ever since. And so I thought it was a good idea to make it a, a dedication to my wife. And now know? she's suffering from Alzheimer's, is that right? Yes, she did. And that's one of the reasons why there are songs on here that are written for her, okay. like Just Like the First Time, and I'm Glad I Danced With You, are all you know, sort of dedicated to her. To that, her. And really. How emotional was it, recording these songs in the studio? Well, it's emotional, because every time she hears it now, you know, I, we play it to her every day. She has a little smile on her face. I okay. think she does recognize it, and, and that's wonderful, you know, and I'm glad I danced with her. Yeah. yeah, and what a beautiful love story. Thank you. Do you feel like music brings your wife back? These songs trigger her memories more than other things. I think music is a great therapy for people suffering from this disease, and when I do play to her, she does have a reaction. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So now, as far as... You know, choosing these songs and recording them in the studio. When you open your mouth to record, does Engelbert Humperdinck come out 
or do you yeah. or yeah, do you yeah. work on like the phrasing and the timing? You know, Angry Bird Humping comes out obviously. You know because. I consider myself, you know, a, a, a thespian of song, and that's my job. And, and I'm on stage and off stage, the same thing. You know, even when I sing in a recording studio, I pretend as though I've got an audience, you okay. know? Okay. Yeah. So everything is a live performance for you? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now, singing songs from Release Me way back in the beginning of your career to songs written by Ed Sheeran, what is your take, as you interpret these songs, on the quality of songwriting? Do you think... Well, you know, you have to be a little bit different. You can't be an exact replica of the person that wrote it. And I just love Ed Sheeran. And, you know, I used to sing one of his other songs, like Thinking Out Loud in my show. Okay. I've loved him from the start, so I thought, let's put one of Ed's numbers on here. And, and this is such a great song, and it fits the sort of format of the album. So therefore, we decided to record, you know, photograph. So what was his reaction when he knew? I don't know. I, I'm waiting to find okay. out. Okay. <laughs> You'll probably find out soon. The only person that showed reaction right now is uh, Richard Marks with How Can You Live With Yourself. He wrote me a lovely email and said that he was glad that I recorded his song. Oh, how nice. Mm -hmm. If you're just jumping in, you're listening to the Mulberry Lane Show. Joining your weekend, Engelbert Humperdinck talking about his latest album, The Man I Want to Be. Who is the producer this time? Uh, Jürgen is my producer and he also owns the record company. Okay, so what did he bring to the project? He brought most of them to me, but you know, there's a song on there right at the end, which is a bonus track, and it was written by Les Reed, a gentleman who was responsible for some of my early hits like The Last Waltz and Le Bicyclette de Belle Size, okay. you know, he sent me this song and it's a tribute for my country. Mm. Uh, I decided to put it on the album and it's getting quite good reaction back home and everywhere else in the world. So that was a good choice. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and the name of that song is Our England. Yes. When you record in the studio, do you still sip your cognac? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. I do. I have a little sip. You know, it gives me that little confidence, little courage. Even though there's nobody watching me, it gives me that little edge. Okay. So now, do you think it does more for your voice or more for your attitude? Uh, I think it's, it's more for the attitude. Okay, <laughs> I like that. So now so you loosen up a little bit, you know? <laughs> yeah. So now you're going on tour. Yes, I am. My tour started when this album was released in November. Well, besides singing my standards on the show, I'm giving them a lot of new material for my new album. You know, I do sing just the way you are on stage. Okay. And I do sing photograph. And I'm glad I danced with you, Particle Sun, and Follow My Heart. That's all new songs on the show. So now, after 81 albums, it's got to be a chore to figure out which songs you're going to sing in the concert. It is a problem. But, you know, this album has solved a lot of problems. Because normally <laughs> I have to go through my repertoire of all my albums and see which ones I want to put back into the show. And now it's given me, this album has given me fresh blood. Uh -huh. I bet it's nice to go out and sing all new songs to you as well. Yes, it is. It is. It's, it's a great change. I would think now touring, you have to love performing and you have to love getting up on stage and singing, but you also have to love people. I do. I do. Live audiences are great. You know, they just, they breathe life into your body and, and I, I you know, being a thespian of song, I just love that. Uh -huh. Now, at this point in your career, would you say it's the people, it's your audience that drives you to put out new music? Or in this case, was it your wife? Actually, it's both in this respect. This album is for my wife, but I do love performing. Okay. Now, family has always been an important part of your life, and you have always put family first. Do you think that's one of the reasons why you've had such a long career? I think so, yes. I think so. Your son and daughter were on the duet album. Yes. Yeah. So did they make an appearance on this album at all? 
Well, now I've got my granddaughter on the album because she's singing the duet with me. Okay. You know, it, she's only nine years old. Awesome. It's unbelievable. So what was that like, singing in the studio with your granddaughter right there? Oh, amazing. I mean, this is a little talent. This is another Bruno Mars. Wow. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm so excited about her career. So now you've got this album and this tour. What's next for you, Engelbert? I don't know. Let's have them going first, you know, and then I'll see what happens. Well, it's lovely to catch up with you once again. Loved hearing about the brand new album. And will you be touring in the Midwest at all? I'm sure, yes. Yes, indeed. And where can people find out where you'll be? It'll be on Anglebird.com. Okay. And by the way, I love the album cover. I think that's a great shot. I had to look at the back as well. It's the same. It's beautiful. <laughs> that was my choice of picture, by the way. I loved it. I love this picture. And I said, and it's like telling you, this is the man I want to be, you know. Yes. And, and that's why I chose that picture. I thought it really translated. Thank you. Uh-huh. Well, great to catch up with you, Engelbert. Thank you for joining the show. Okay, my love, you all. Thank you very much. That's legendary artist Engelbert Humperdinck here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Make sure you check out The Man I Want to Be. And next up, meet Michelle Rubini, acclaimed pianist, composer, and a member of The Wrecking Crew, studio musicians who performed on hundreds of hits. And here's Engelbert singing Ed Sheeran's photograph. Loving can hurt. Loving can hurt sometimes. But it's the only thing that I know When it gets hard You know it can get hard sometimes It is the only thing that makes us feel alive We keep this love in a photograph We made these memories for ourselves Where eyes are never closing Hearts are never broken And time's forever frozen still So you can keep me Inside the pocket of your ripped jeans Holding me closer till the eyes meet You won't ever be alone Wait for me to come home Loving can heal Loving can mend your soul Music, arts, and lifestyle Back to the Mulberry Lane Show Now, here's Mulberry Lane As a child prodigy who lived a hit-making, hell-raising life as a member of the famous Wrecking Crew in the 60s and 70s, Michelle Rubini has some stories to tell of that golden time in music. His memoir, Life in the Key of Rubini, tells the crazy behind-the-scenes stories of some of the biggest hits, the biggest stars, and how Michelle lived the life and lived to tell about it. Welcome, welcome to the show, Michelle Rubini. 
Well, welcome to you, too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was the best intro I've had in a long time. Awesome to hear. Can I hire you guys? <laughs> yeah. We'll just walk in ahead of you and introduce you in song everywhere you go. Wonderful. <laughs> now, the list of songs you have played on is long and incredible, from Sinatra's Strangers in the Night, The Righteous Brothers' Unchained Melody, Sonny and Cher, I Got You, Babe, and The Jackson 5, I Want You Back. So before we get into the specifics, you know, that you cover in your book, set the scene on how the Wrecking Crew came together and what that time was like in music, because it's so different now. Yeah, boy, it's another world now. At that time, uh, the guys that wound up being in the Wrecking Crew were all individuals, you know, who didn't know each other and came from different backgrounds and different locations in the country, but they all had one thing in common. They wanted to work and they wanted to be musicians. And they thought the place to do that was in L.A., mm -hmm. so they packed up their bags and, and came here looking for work. And, you know, they would get work in nightclubs, and, and little by little they would get connected and start to do demo records. And then the word would start to get around from different studio owners and arrangers and record producers. Hey, this guy, Hal Blaine, he's pretty good. You know, you should use him. His drums sound better than the other guy you used yeah. last time. So Hal would start getting a reputation, and in fairly short order, that's about how all the guys in general got to be where they got. Okay, now you're a keyboards guy. Right, I'm a keyboards guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I always think of myself as a pianist, you know, but yeah, I'll play for pay, you know, want me to play harpsichord, fine, want me to play bells, fine, shaker, fine, I don't care. And you started when you were four. Yes, I had to practice a lot, you know, and, and my mother, who played piano, she would uh, sit at the piano bench and watch me practice and okay. make sure I was reading the music. Right, yeah. So then, as time went on, and you, you got this reputation, and you started playing on all these different records and things, what was that like for you? Did you know who would be coming in that day? Did you just show up? How did that work? More times than not, I did not know who I was going to be working for. Okay. Uh, when I would get a call through the, the musician's answering service, a, a place called Arlen's Answering Service, they would say, can you be at Columbia Records at 3 o'clock on Wednesday? Uh, and I'd say, I'd look at my schedule, and I'd say yes or no. You know, if I said yes, they said, okay, take that date. And so I would write it down in my book, and then I would show up at Columbia Records, walk into a room full of musicians and sit down at the piano and say, well, who are we doing today? And they'd say, well, Johnny Mathis. <laughs> I said, wow. oh, great. You know, so a little later, Mathis would show up and introduce himself around to the band and say hi, and, and then we'd go to work. Okay, so now recording at that time, would you all record together? Yes. Okay, so the <laughs> artist would be there in the room. Just explain how it worked. Well, um, in the early 60s, they couldn't even overdub anything, so the singers had to sing along with the band. So, you know, when you listen to a, a Doris Day record or a Patti Page record or a Lightning Hopkins record or any of those early records, they're all played together with the band. Yeah. And it was only in the middle 60s when they got uh, two-track machines and then they got four-track machines, the A-track 16, all the way up to 24-track machines. That's when they started in recording the band without the singers and and that way they wouldn't have to actually finish the record they wouldn't be under the pressure mm -hmm. of having to finish the record inside that three-hour time limit that they had for the session they could do a session with the band and get that fine and then they could do a vocal session later on 
and uh, the vocalist could work on getting his or her's best performance. Right. Okay. And so that's how it happened. When I first started recording, singers were almost always there. And then as time went on, the singers were there less and less. Yes. Well, it's interesting because when you first started recording and the singers were there, you think about how many artists that would eliminate today if that's how you had to record. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Absolutely. You are so right. I, mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> well, right now on the Mulberry Lane Show, we're talking with Michelle Rubini, acclaimed pianist, composer, and one of the members of the Wrecking Crew, a group of studio musicians in the 60s and 70s who played on several hundred times. 40 hits. Now, Michelle just released his book, Life in the Key of Rubini, a Hollywood childhood prodigy and his wild adventures in crime, music, sex, Sinatra, and Wonder Woman. Okay, now you lived the life of a rock star. Yeah, I sort of did. Yeah. <laughs> so there's so, no sort of about it. You did. <laughs> so now, including you had in a longtime affair with Linda Carter, Wonder Woman. So what were those days like? Well, those were really high-flying days, high-flying and hot, hot days. Uh, Linda was Miss World USA, and I was Sonny Cher's musical director. That's what I was when I met her. Okay. And, uh, and we took to each other. And, uh, but she was traveling all the time, and I was traveling all the time. And so we would arrange to meet each other at a mutual uh, destination, uh, you know, if, if she was going to be in Dallas and uh, and I was in Kansas or something, if, if I had a couple of days, I would fly down to Dallas and and meet her there, you know, and, and, and stay in the hotel with her. Uh, and that was sort of the way we did things, uh-huh. you know, as long as I was traveling and as long as she was traveling. After she got the, uh, the Wonder Woman show, then she was situated in, in Hollywood and she wasn't traveling so much. And so when I would see her, you know, she'd come over to my place or something like that. And, uh, but, you know, at the time she got the Wonder Woman series, I saw very fast that our relationship wasn't going to stand the test of time because she was now successful, you know, and I, I knew that somebody was going to snatch her up, you know, the president of a movie studio <laughs> or something. <laughs> you know, poor little Michelle, you know, he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to wind up with that one, that was for sure. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but I had fun. I had it, fun. It was fun while it lasted. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was very dramatic, you know. I mean, it was yeah. very exciting, this, this meeting in out-of-the-way places and you know, taking little bits of time, a weekend here or a night there, and that type of thing. That that was really exciting. Was it a, was it a roller coaster ride of emotions? Yes. Okay, yes. Yeah. And do you think that you pull that into your playing from some of the stories that you lived? Do you think that comes through in the feeling of your piano playing? Yes, my life, my life shows in my playing, absolutely, yep. Michelle Rubini here on the Mulberry Lane Show, acclaimed pianist composer who has played on countless hits in the 60s and 70s as a member of the Wrecking Crew. You guys have to check out his book, Life and the Key of Rubini, and we're going to meet you right here after the break. And Michelle has more stories for you behind the scenes of playing the hits here on the Mulberry Lane Show. Taking you to break with the massive hit by Sonny and Cher that Michelle played keyboards on. Here's I Got You, Babe. They say we're young and we don't Well, I don't know why that's true Cause you got me 
bringing you the stories behind the songs. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. We're in the middle of a chat right now with acclaimed composer and pianist Michelle Rubini. Michelle was a member of The Wrecking Crew, a group of studio musicians in the 60s and 70s who played on countless hits. Now, he just released a book, Life in the Key of Rubini, a Hollywood child prodigy, and his wild adventures in crime, music, sex, Sinatra, and Wonder Woman. Now, in the first part of this chat, you heard about Michelle's musical background and his affair with Wonder Woman herself, Linda Carter. And on this part, he's going to pull the curtain back on some of the recordings of the most classic and iconic hits that he played on. Back to Michelle Rubini right now. Okay, so I'm a lover of big bands and crooner singers. Uh So I personally, Strangers in the Night is one of my favorite songs of all time. So I want to hear about what that session was like and how that went down and your role in it. Well, I was called to do this session by uh, Jimmy Bowen, who was the producer of the record. Uh-huh. And uh, it was called for an 8 o'clock recording date. It was going to be a three-hour date. Okay. And the studio was just packed with musicians. There were like, I don't know, 40, 50 guys or anything. Jimmy really pulled out the stops as far as the budget went. Uh-huh. Because this was his like one big shot to produce Frank Sinatra. He hadn't previously done that, so... It was almost like a test for him. I see. And uh, although he'd had a dozen huge hit records with Dean Martin Uh uh, previous, you know, this was now Sinatra. And so he was under the gun. In any case, the musicians all arrived at 8 o'clock, and we rehearsed the song until about 10 minutes to 9. We had it down perfectly. I mean, note for note, just everything was perfect. And uh, uh, Frank was scheduled to show up at 9 o'clock, so the guys took a break. At 9 o'clock, uh, we were back in our chairs, and Frank walked in right on schedule. But he was brought with him his entourage, a, a group of about 20 people wow. that were all dressed in, in diamonds and furs and, and tuxedos, like they were going out to the Stork Club afterwards or something. Wow. And he had notified the studio he was going to do that, although none of us in the band knew he was going to do that. And the studio had provided a whole bunch of chairs uh, over at one end of the room that wasn't being used. And so his entourage was directed to sit in those chairs. So they all walked over and sat in those chairs at attention, didn't say a word, right, just had to sit there. And Frank walked in and introduced himself around to the guys in the band. And then he stepped up into the vocal booth, which was right next to the piano, uh-huh. and uh, we introduced ourselves. And So then we started recording the song, and uh, they got like, vocal levels on Frank, and then we went for take one, and he sang it beautifully, perfect. Uh-huh. And it would have been a one-take deal, except that he didn't know that we were going to fade out the ending. Uh, someone, evidently the arranger, had not told him that the song was not going to end. It was going to fade out. So he wasn't prepared. So when we got to the end, the band just kept on playing, and he was just sitting there looking around lost, you know, what's going on? So he stopped the band and said, you know, what's, what's happening? What am I supposed to do? The band's still playing. I thought it ended. You know? uh-huh. <laughs> and then Jimmy Bowen had to come out to, into the studio and say, Frank, listen, I, I guess we didn't talk this over. <laughs> And then you had to do the whole thing again. Oh, yes. Yeah. So 
Jimmy told Frank, listen, you have to sing something. It's a fade out. You have to sing something. And he said, well, I didn't practice that. You know, I, I didn't rehearse that at home. You should have told me. He wasn't real happy about that, yeah. you know. So because now he was going to have to improvise. So we did a second take, and, and he did an ending that was, uh, I'll just say, wasn't acceptable <laughs> on the record. So Frank had another little talk with Jimmy. And Jimmy tried to give him a little direction and said, you know, man, just scab, you know, do what you do. Yeah. <laughs> and so he said, okay. And, and he still had a confused look on his face, I'm telling you. I saw wow, it. you saw all that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then he went back in the booth and we did take three. And on take three, when he got to the end, he started in going scooby dooby doo, dooby dooby. That was take three. <laughs> you know, yes. and, and yada, yada, yada. You know, anyway, so then the, the record faded out, and, and Frank said, Is that it? And Jimmy said, uh, Yeah, we, we got it. And uh, or actually, I, let me rephrase that. Frank said, that's it. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he didn't ask. It was, a, yeah, it was a statement. That is it. It's right, done. right. Yeah. And, and he got up and left the studio, and the whole entourage got up at the same time and just followed him out the door, just like a herd of lemmings. What you know? a moment. What a moment. Wow. Yeah. Well, right now on the Mulberry Lane Show, you're listening to our chat with acclaimed pianist and composer Michelle Rubini. Now, he's a member of the Wrecking Crew. He's telling you about a lot of studio sessions of hit songs that he was a part of. And you can get his book that's out now called Life in the Key of Rubini. What do you hope that people take away from the book? And, and you've been through a lot in your life, including you know some sexual abuse and a lot of ups and downs and hard things. So as people read the book, what do you hope they take away? Well, that's a good question. I hope that they take away a better understanding of what it's like to be someone in my position. And also, I hope that they enjoy the book. I know there's, there's some things in there that are not enjoyable to read. Um, Was it hard but, for you but, to be that honest? Oh, yes. Yes, <laughs> a- absolutely. But I, I told Ken Hartman, uh, who was the person who really is responsible for me writing the book. Ken is the uh, author of the best-selling novel, The Wrecking Crew. Okay. I mean, not novel, but the book. The, the book, Wrecking right. Crew, uh-huh. yeah. And uh, he was the one that got me to do it. I, I told him, I said, if I write this book, it's not going to be just, uh, well, I played with this person. It wasn't going to be like an itinerary, you know, uh-huh. uh, where I was with this person in this state and then I played here. You know, like so many of these books are like, uh, they just sort of, gloss over anything that has any import or, or right. importance or to it right. yeah, or depth and I said I'm not going to write that if I write it I'm going to write everything and I did but well, I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be when I got to that section uh-huh. of the book that awakened memories in me that, that just you know are just nightmares I'm sure. and so so I, uh, <laughs> I wound up going to a psychiatrist. <laughs> After yes, I, uh-huh. yeah, I, I, I couldn't deal with it. I really almost had a nervous breakdown. Uh, because of and, uh, it. Yeah. So, yes, and so it was. It was very difficult for me to write the book. So would you say, in the end, it was cathartic to go through that and write it? Uh, I'm not sure if, if if it's cathartic to tell you the truth, um, uh-huh. but it was something that. I guess I, I had to get on paper and, and get it down, mm-hmm. you know, and get rid of it. 
that but way. There was a lot of bravery involved in writing this. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was difficult. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you, people don't have to read that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> There's that disclaimer. Yeah, if you want to have a good time, skip that chapter. Skip that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> they can read it when they feel ready. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> well, Michelle, we want to thank you so much for joining the show, telling us about the book, and it's so cool to get your perspective, your insight, and even sharing the difficulty in writing this. I wish we had more time with I know, you. I want to hear about so many of the great songs you played on, but I guess everyone needs to read the book. Get the yes, book. everybody needs to read the book. That's what they need to do. <laughs> Life is the key of Rubini. That's All right. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Okay. And what a key it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, girl. Thank you. Acclaimed keyboardist, pianist, and composer Michelle Rubini here on the Mulberry Lane Show and now author. You guys have to check out his riveting book, Life in the Key of Rubini. When we come back, meet Dr. Scott Litton of the Mayo Clinic. He's going to tell you about the Mayo Clinic Family Health Book 5th Edition. Keep it right here on the Mulberry Lane Show. We got you covered. Ever since that night, we've been together, lovers at first sight. Got you covered. The Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Well, what's better than having the knowledge and expertise of more than 4,500 physicians, scientists, and researchers at your fingertips when you or a family member is not feeling well? Well, the comprehensive fifth edition of the Mayo Family Health Book gives you information to check your symptoms, treatment options, and so much more. Now, Dr. Scott Linton, Mayo internist for more than 20 years and the editor of this book, is here to discuss what you can learn from having this book on your shelf. Welcome. Welcome to the show, Dr. Scott Litton. Uh, welcome. I'm happy to be here. Oh, wow. Oh. Now, who would believe we have lots of musicians and artists on the show? Who would believe that it was the doctor that sang back to us? <laughs> That's awesome. And we're so happy to have you here. So now summer is upon us. And with it comes the bug bites, mosquito bites, sunburn. So what's the best way to treat these things or even prevent them? Well, thanks again for having me. Uh, in this Mayo Family Health book, we've tried to cover everything that the family would need to know. And okay. one of the things that we talk about, in addition to healthy living, are medical emergencies, first aid, and what we need to know and do for our families when traveling, and especially what we need to do when we're out in the summer weather. One of the things that's important is to have some sort of a good first aid kit available. Okay. And you can either purchase these in a store or you can make your own and keep it in the car with things like instant ice packs, bandages, compression bandages, normal, clear, sterile, saline, gauze, band-aids, all the things that we think about. One thing we often don't think about, though, is the tweezers. 
Okay. Uh, not only for slivers, but for wood ticks. And when I got a wood tick when I was a little boy, he used to take a match, light it, put it out, and put it on the rear end of the wood tick because they were told that would make the wood tick back out of where it is. Okay. Unfortunately, sometimes wood ticks burrow deeper, oh. so that really isn't the very helpful. Solution. So what we show in our Mayo Family Health Book is how to grab the head of the wood tick with the tweezers and gently pull to remove the wood tick and then even save the wood tick to show to your health professional if you might be worried it might have spread a disease. Okay, so then how do we know, and I know tick season is supposed to be particularly bad this summer, how do we know if the head is out and you've fully removed it? Well, one of the things that we have in our family health book are pictures of the wood ticks. Okay. And so we have enlarged pictures and then the actual size so you'd pretty much be able to tell if the head were out. And honestly, if you take the tweezers and gently pull near the head, when the body was grabbed of the wood tick and pulled with a jerk, that's where some of the head could be left behind. Okay. All right. Well, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Scott Litton, editor of the Mayo Clinic Family Health Book, here on the Mulberry Link Show. So now, uh, summer sports are in full swing right now, and, you know, there's little things like blisters or sprains, and then, you know, the larger things that parents especially worry about is how do you know if your child has a concussion? Well, let's get to some of the easy things, because the easy things are also important, too. You mentioned blisters, and I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of times we'll go out hiking, or we'll get a new pair of shoes, and, and a large blister will form. If possible, leave it alone. But some of the blisters are kind of large and painful, and it's okay to get the fluid out of some of those blisters, but you must do it carefully. So we recommend like a sterile needle, a couple punctures around the edge of the blister, and let the fluid drain out, but do not remove the skin around the blister because that is there for a purpose. That helps prevent infection, and it helps cushion the area while it grows in and heals. That's really important. And how do we make sure Uh, a needle is sterile? Well, that's one time that you can use the old match and just take the head of it. And, uh, you know, you can either wipe it off with rubbing alcohol if you've got that available and make sure the sanitizers, or if you don't have it available, if you're out in the woods, but you've got matches for fires, you can heat it that way. Uh, Sprains. R-I-C-E. R is for rest. I is for ice. So you want to ice an acute sprain that will help keep down the swelling. C is for compression. So an ACE wrap or a compression ACE wrap is very important. And then E is for elevation. So that's the common sense treatment of a sprain. And you mentioned a little bit about concussions, which are also always concerning. One of the most important ways to treat a concussion is to prevent a concussion. And that's why bike helmets are absolutely a must. I don't care where you are, where you're going. These are crucial. You know, if you are afraid that your child has suffered a concussion, if they're not acting quite right, it's probably important to get them evaluated by a a medical professional. Now, is there any test that parents can perform? I know I've used the light on my cell phone and shine it in their eyes to see if the pupils respond. Now, is that a valid way to see if there's a concussion going on? 
Well, that's a valid way to see if the pupils respond, but not really a valid way. You know, a concussion is basically a bruise, a trauma on the brain. Headache, maybe not quite as alert as okay, they had been before. A little bit of change before. in behavior. Change in behavior, that, that has to be evaluated. Okay, and then before we let you go, now you edited this book. So what type of job was this to go through all these pages and, and, and put this book together? Well, my life has been committed to patient care and to education. So I really didn't find this as much of a chore as more of a a kind of a labor of love. I'm proud of what we've come up with. I was the editor, but by no means did I do this alone. We had a huge team of experts and educators and clinicians at Mayo Clinic that helped revise and put this product together. And I think we can be proud of it. And it's the Mayo Family Health Book and can be bought at any bookstore or also ordered online as well. Okay, well, Dr. Scott Litton, we want to thank you so much for joining the show. You've enlightened us with some very good tips for our summer, for a healthy and productive summer. Thank you so much. And thanks for singing to me. And thanks for singing back. (laughs) Yes. That's Dr. Scott Litton with the Mayo Clinic Family Health Book. Fifth edition, you guys. And Dr. Litton, thanks for joining the show. We enjoyed our conversation with you and the great tips you brought for our summer. All right, sisters, who else do we need to thank? Okay, well, music legend hugs to Engelbert Humperdinck. Engelbert, thanks for joining us again here on the Mulberry Lane Show. It was so awesome to hear about your latest album, The Man I Want to Be. Okay, sisters, who else? Well, rock and roll high fives to the man, the myth, the legend, Michelle Rubini. Yes. And if you read his new book, Life in the Key of Rubini, you'll know why Allie calls him that. Mm -hmm. Get all the rock and roll stories, pick up the book. And Michelle, thanks for sharing your honest take on life in the fast lane as told on Mulberry Lane. (laughs) That's right. All right, guys. Well, happy Father's Day weekend. Hope you're celebrating all the men in your life. Check out our Facebook page. We posted a brand new Father's Day song we wrote especially for your Father's Day. So check it out. See you guys next week. Bo, stay happy and stay blessed. Allie, don't forget to be awesome. Rachel, that's a wrap. Woo! It's